after Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan, and he camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, uh, that had been born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. And when Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favour in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace for us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honoured of all his father's family, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So, Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. 
These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock and their property and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men who went out, of the, out to the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and, and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have put you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Roger. Well, if you've heard me preach a couple of times, you'll know I'm fairly predictable. In a good way, in that I try to introduce the theme or the big idea or the big question of the passage asking in unusually in a light-hearted manner. Well, today's passage isn't funny, is it? So instead, I want to just begin with some reassurances for you. And especially reassurances um, if you've suffered some kind of abuse, or, and especially if you're female. Because chapter 34 deals with the rape of Dinah and the consequences. So here are my reassurances. I'm not going to downplay what happened to Dinah and say, oh, actually, the original Hebrew means it wasn't all that bad at all. No, it was a horrible, non-consensual sexual assault. I'm not going to suggest that somehow Dinah brought this upon herself. Oh, she shouldn't have been going out to see the women of the land. No. I'm not going to suggest that Shechem's subsequent romantic love for Dinah that followed her rape in any way makes what he did okay or more palatable or that she should just get over it. Nothing like that. And I'm not going to suggest that in any way this is somehow a good thing because at the end God's promises continue to be fulfilled. And I'm not going to make excuses for God 
as to why he let this happen to Dinah. I don't know why God let this happen to her. I wish that he hadn't. And I reckon that's how he wants us to feel about it. And I feel I have to say these things up front because we live in a world where sin means the playing field is still not level for women. And this is not a blame, a silly blame men for everything rant kind of thing. But I have observed, especially in the public domain, what often happens is if something bad happens to a woman, some people want to work out why it was all her fault. And if a man does something bad, some people want to find the nearest woman to blame for it. That's just the world we live in. And so the abuse suffered is made all the worse. So I just want to reassure you, not today, not from this passage, not from me. None of that nonsense. And I don't know what sort of abuse or suffering at the hands of others you might have been through in life. And I assume, my assumption is, lots of us have some war stories to tell. But I do know that God is good, and I do know that God sees you. Because who was Dina's mum? Overlooked, forgotten, second fiddle Leah. But God saw her. God saw Leah. God saw Dina. And God sees you. So whatever else we come up with from this passage, none of it denies Dina's genuine suffering. None of it denies that we can suffer genuinely awful circumstances where it's just really hard to know how to respond. So with that said, let's pray again. Lord, I pray for us here. I pray we'll know a special sense of your comfort and your love, especially if we've got um, this brings up memories or bad experiences for us. Uh, please comfort us. Please help us to hear you, what you want us to get from this part of your word. Amen. So why preach on this at all? You might have noticed I've missed chapter 33, which would have been much easier, let me tell you. That's all hearts and flowers, because Jacob and Esau finally bury the hatchet. They make peace. It's a lovely story. Well, we look at chapter 34 because life is often much more chapter 34 than it is chapter 33, isn't it? Like The reason I felt like we needed that preamble is because we, like Jacob, live in a world where bad things are done to good people and then glossed over and excused. And the Bible doesn't shy away from life as it really is, from people as they really are. Because the people in this chapter aren't caricatures. We've met ratbags like these. We've suffered like some of these people. We might even have sinned a bit like them. So Jacob needed to know, God's people need to know, we need to know, how do we live in a world where things like this are done? Uh, what lessons can we take from this? Who, if anyone, behaves correctly here? And how should we respond to the fact that our lives like it or not, are mired in sin and its consequences. Well, we're going to think about that by looking at the different responses uh, to the crime. So here's our outline. The crime, Jacob's response, the brother's response, and our response. Just a little bit of context then to get you up to speed. Uh, Jacob's had passed down to him the, pr the promise of blessing 
from God, given Abraham and then Isaac, and that's definitely coming to him, God said. Um, Countless offspring who will be God's chosen people. God will give them a land of their own. The territory Jacob's now heading back to after 20 years away, raising a family. Uh, And in that time, Jacob's been matured and grown in faith by the school of hard knocks that he's been to. Uh, Things are looking good. Jacob's at peace with his father-in-law. Laban is at peace with his twin brother Esau, who had, he had left wanting to kill him. He's got offspring, a family, and he's well off. And so as he returns to the promised land, to the land promised to him by God, the tension in the air is, how is Jacob going to acquire this promised land? Which Jacob are we going to see? Are we going to see slippery trickster Jacob? Are we going to see faithful trust God with everything Jacob? Has he learned any lessons? What will it be like to be God's chosen people living as foreigners in a land full of strangers? All these questions in the air. Now, just to get your head around the geography, God has told Jacob to return to his dad, to Isaac. Um, Now, if you think of Bethel, where Jacob had his dream and saw God, Isaac is about a day past Bethel. But... um, As we find Jacob at the start of today's reading, he camps kind of a day short of Bethel within sight of Shechem. Well, within sight of Shechem, it said, and that should ring alarm bells for the original hearers at least, because that sounds like when Abram's brother Lot camped near in sight of Sodom. And what happened to Lot? He ended up being absorbed into that culture. He was just like one of the locals by the time he was rescued. So I don't know why Jacob stopped there. Maybe they needed a wee stop or something. Who knows? But Jacob buys a plot of ground. And that could be a sign that actually Jacob's grown up a bit. He's being sensible. He's treading carefully, taking the softly, softly approach with the locals. Maybe he has learned a thing or two. So things are looking good on the right track. But then there is the crime. That's our first heading, the crime. So chapter 34, verses 1 and 2. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, had born, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. Literally, he took her, lay with her, and humiliated her. And not just a physical act. We are embodied souls. So verse 5, Dina had been defiled, a person loved by God, made in his image, treated like an object. And in case people write in Bible commentaries thousands of years later want to play down the crime, and sadly some of them do, our author, the narrator, probably Moses, tells us exactly what to make of this crime. Verse 7, Jacob's sons were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. That's from the narrator. That's telling us what to take from this. An indefensible crime. And verse 31, she'd been treated like a prostitute. And then just look at the contrast between verse 2 and verse 3. Shechem saw her, He took her and raped her. 
Then the violin music comes on. His heart was drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Shechem somehow thinks he can treat Dina with utter hatred. And then the next minute finds himself head over heels for her. Do you see how insipid and deceptive sin can be? How sin can convince us that evil is good and good is evil. But Shechem's in love with her now and he wants to marry her. Well, so what? See, we've got to be careful not to import our own culture into the Bible. So you watch pretty much any film or TV and the romantic love that Shechem is now feeling, that, that's quite often the ultimate goal, isn't it? That's the thing to attain at all costs, despite the odds. Who we, who we fancy, we are told, is the basis of our whole identity. And we're harming ourselves if we don't get to express it. So the story goes. But the Bible doesn't treat romantic love like that. It's more realistic. The Bible knows about romantic love. It's just not convinced It's a basis for lasting happiness, security, or good marriages that honor God. Romance in the Bible, just as often, if not more, is a source of broken relationships, even murder. But like Shechem, in our world, romance is too often used to gloss over and excuse lustful sin. That's a good line for your next Valentine's card. You could put that in there, might help. Shechem, in verse 7, saw her. Now, we all do that. We all, you know, if you want to avoid sexualized imagery, good luck to you. It's everywhere, isn't it? But entertaining those images, those thoughts, turning them into selfish lust, even just in your mind, well, that transforms the temptation into sin. The sin of treating that person, let's not dress it up, treating that person like a prostitute. So we mustn't import our culture into the Bible because we're we're not told about Shechem's love for Dina to say, the Bible is not trying to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter that he rates her because he now fancies her and wants to marry her. The Bible isn't saying his love outweighs the crime. But he's telling us his love for her to explain why Shechem wants to marry Dina. Because Shechem wanting to marry Dina presents a real dilemma for Jacob. Because here he is, just arrived in the promised land, and he's presented straight away with a guilt-edged shortcut to getting his feet under the table there. The son of the local ruler wants to marry into his family. Instant success is on the cards. The cost, saying that what happened to his daughter didn't matter. So how will Jacob respond? Let's have a look at Jacob's response. In all our time looking at Jacob, I don't know about you, but I found it really hard to pin down what to learn from him. And at the start of this series, Hank, who can't be here today, but Hank pointed out to me that lots of people give Jacob a hard time, 
But the writer of Hebrews remembers him like this. Hebrews 11.21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. He died a faithful man. And we had Matt Winter preaching last week. He probably was a bit more disparaging about Jacob than I had been the week before. But the thing is, we were both right. Jacob is a mixed bag, isn't he? Everything does. We're thinking, oh, is this faithful Jacob? Or is this tricky with the dealer Jacob? And if he is being a bit tricky, is that a bad thing? Uh, we've been watching at home the latest Star Wars series, Andor, and it's really good, right? It's really good. And what I really like about it is, although it's a, a one of the simple goodies versus baddies thing, it's more nuanced, more true to life than that, in that the goodies make morally questionable decisions. I think that resonates with us more because we can see how we might do the same in the extreme circumstances. Similarly with Jacob, he's good and bad. He's faithful and flawed. Well, he's like you and I really, isn't he? So mixed up Jacob, again, similar with this current dilemma. On one hand... Well, I suppose it's good he's not up to his old tricks. He's, he's working for peace. He's not rash or hasty. On the other hand, we've seen him with a lot more get up and go, a lot more initiative and twisting everything to his advantage, haven't we? Especially when it was his own well-being that was at stake. You'd like a bit of that for his daughter right now, wouldn't you? His first reaction, verse 5, is to wait until his sons are back. Again, is this him being passive or just wise? He's certainly less proactive than Shechem and Shechem's dad, Hamor. Verse 6, Hamor comes to talk with Jacob and his sons. And then verse 7 to 18, that's all negotiation between Hamor, the sons, and, and Shechem. But Jacob says nothing. And certainly he fails to bring the conversation back to holding them accountable for the crime as Hamor tries to paper over the cracks. And later on, Jacob only seems bothered about the impact of the brother's actions on himself and his household. And you think, well, where was your concern for your household, which includes Dina, back in those negotiations? And the brothers respond to Jacob, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 31. Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? In other words, think about it, Dad. If you did settle for Hamor's deal, what would you have been saying? That what happened to Dina doesn't matter? At least not as much as an easy ride into the promised land. So Dina's honor is at stake, but also at stake is God's plan to bless the world through this family. Their future as a family is God's chosen, set-apart people. Their big danger right now is being absorbed, being no different to the locals. So verse 9, the locals say, Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Uh, The brothers describe the deal like this in verse 16. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. And the Shechemites, rubbing their hands, oblivious to their fate, they say, won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let's agree to their terms, and they will settle among us. So in other words, 
the fate on the cards for Jacob and his family, if this all goes ahead, is it will be no longer distinguishable as set apart for God. And instead, they'll just become just another bunch of locals, same as everyone else. So what about us? How should we, in what way should we be distinctive? Where should we draw the line, even if it causes us to suffer? I mean, we have to acknowledge that sometimes saying and doing nothing is the right thing to do. It saves us from rash, unwise decisions, from inflaming situations. And we don't want people to think that the gospel is all about being moralizing do-gooders. Because the, gospel, the good news about Jesus is not, I am good and you should be as well. We should stand against sin and injustice, but only ever from the stance of knowing that we are sinful and unjust ourselves. We should have the same bias that God has got for the poor and the powerless, speaking up for those without a voice, for the deaners of this world. We should let our light shine. We should be bold in sharing the gospel and living in God's ways and expect to suffer for that. But living in God's ways, we have to remember, also includes keeping the peace as much as it's up to us and obeying authorities where we can without disobeying God. There's lots more we could say, but we haven't got time. And we'll think more about our responses at the end. But if Jacob was too passive... What about the brothers? The brothers' response. Excuse me. We sh- we should let our assessment of the brothers, because I, I don't know when you hear what the brothers did, you're like, yeah, go on, stick it to them, aren't you? Honestly, but we should let our assessment of them be coloured, be tempered by what how Jacob assesses them on his deathbed at the end of Genesis. Genesis 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Verse 7. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And that's a prophecy that comes true. Israel is protected from the violent nature of the Simeonites and Levites, by their tribes being distributed throughout the nation. Now, at the start, I said there's nothing funny in this passage, except perhaps the image of the Shechemites walking around like a John Wayne cowboy, having been convinced to get circumcised, you know, no contact sports for a few weeks. Uh, you know, sitting there sore, but pleased with themselves that Shechem has not only got away with his crime, but they've profited from it and convincing themselves it's a win-win for all around. And in verses 21 and 20 to 23, they list all the things that they are going to gain. And when they do that, actually, they're unwittingly listing all the things they're about to lose. And honestly, part of us loves it, don't we? It's nearly time to start watching Christmas movies. Uh, One of my favorite Christmas movies, Die Hard. Classic action movie. So if you've not seen it, I don't know what planet you live on, but anyway, if you've not seen it, the baddies take over an office tower 
to rob it, and they cruelly kill innocent people. And it's down to one heroic cop, John McClane, to save the day. And even if you've not seen it, you've seen things like it. An innocent has been wronged or underestimated, and any violence and death then rain down upon the perpetrators is fair game, and we cheer it on. Yay, violence, death, brilliant. Guys dropped from the, off the top of a building. Amazing. No mercy. And that resonates us because that's the revenge morality of our society and of our culture and in somewhere of us. And that's certainly the revenge morality of the brothers. So how will God's people behave in the promised land? Well, much like Jacob, it turns out. They're chips off the old block, aren't they? Did you notice the word in verse 13? Because their sister Dina had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. Deceitful tricksters just like dad. Kind of feels like we're back to square one. Now, how far along in the brothers' actions do you find yourselves still cheering on for them, honestly? So, you know, I mean, the circus and shizen trick thing, you know, what better punishment for a rapist than having his wedding tackle suffer? I think we'd probably go along with that. Killing the baddies, maybe they deserved that, do you think? Rescuing Dina, that's a good thing, isn't it? Sends a message, probably what they deserve, maybe. And then looting the city, I'm not sure I'd do that. Taking away the women and children. This is getting out of hand, isn't it? We're beginning to think this is less about Dina and more about the brothers, aren't we? If you take out the personal connection, take out the emotion, uh, what they do is highly disproportionate, isn't it? I mean, what life is there now for these women and children that they've just taken? Is it really going to be any better than Dina's. And, you know, they've taken all these flocks. They might have more flocks, be richer. But when they return from the fields each day, they're going to be met with broken-hearted glares of hatred. Welcome to the promised land. So in many ways, the brothers have fallen into that danger of being absorbed by, being becoming indistinguishable from the locals. Certainly the crime against Dina should not go unpunished. But their approach is over the top. And as Jacob points out, it's going to have long-lasting consequences for life in Canaan. And once again, looking at the story of Jacob, you can't help thinking that things are going to be a lot harder than they needed to be. God's people are taking the long way round again. So that's Jacob and the brother's response. Now, it's easy to point fingers at them, but what, what should our response be? What should be our response to ourselves and to others suffering abuse? More pointedly, how should we respond as God's people in a way that's distinct, such that we're not absorbed into being the same as everyone else? Now, there's lots of biblical principles we can apply, and I can't do justice to them here, but just to briefly mention... In his kindness, God works through human, secular authorities to be his agents of order and justice. So, for example, Romans 13, verse 4. 
For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So it's appropriate with a crime like happened to Dina. It's appropriate, even in the long, in the long term, merciful to seek legal address for abuse that we suffer. It is possible to forgive someone and still want to see them imprisoned for their crime. God uses secular authorities, and we should honor that. Jacob's sons seem to want to leave no stone unturned in redressing the balance, don't they? But we've got very little hope of being accurate and proportionate in our taking vengeance. Better to leave that to God. Romans twelve nineteen. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So that's not saying abuse suffered doesn't matter. It's saying it matters so much that it must be perfectly fair and just an all-seeing God who does the avenging. And his promise that he'll do that can free us from the bitterness of dragging those hurts through life with us. We don't have to have the last word because God will. And he cares about it even more than we do. How should we respond to abuse? The aim should be forgiveness. Now, I don't say that lightly. And I don't want to make that an easy platitude. It's very easy for me to say the words, isn't it? So just to give me a little bit more challenge, let's imagine Dina's here. What am I going to say to poor Dina? Well, I'd say, Dina, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean forgetting. Forgiveness doesn't mean what happened to you doesn't matter. But forgiveness does mean letting go of what Shechem did to you and handing that over to God, handing him over to God. It means resolving not to hate him. It means trusting God with his fate. I'd say, Dina, you know how trustworthy and good God has been to your family. And from my point in history, I can see even more. Because God became one of us, a man, Jesus, your ancestor, actually. That blessing the whole world thing. This is how it happened. That was by him coming not to condemn us, but to save us. And of course, we abused him. We treated him badly, just like we always end up treating God. But he chose being abused to death to win our forgiveness. God turned the anger we deserve on himself. He returned hate with love. And look, Dina, I know we're not God. But the God we love and belong to has set us a pattern of making peace, even where it's undeserved, where we possibly can. And Jesus, more than anyone, knows how much it costs an abused person to do just that. 
So what can we learn from this chapter? I heard another pastor describe this chapter as a bit like, you know, in cigarette packets, you have the horrible pictures of mangy lungs and things like that as a warning to put you off smoking them. I think part of the purpose of this chapter is that it's a horrible picture of abuse, of passive underreaction, of violent overreaction to show us what not to do. And it acts as a warning to us to remain distinct as belonging to God, trusting in God. As everybody else follows their whims and twisted thoughts around us, to remain distinct by following God's example of faithful care. And as we tot up the scores at the end of this chapter, where are we up to? God's people are still intact. God's people are still a distinct people, still with a foot in the promised land, still well provided for. Uh, Things are, once again, much harder than they needed to be. The seeds of conflict sown, but they're there. But again, let me say, none of that makes Dina's rape okay or a good thing. It shouldn't have happened. It's not okay. And God will have the last word on Shechem. And men like him. And that's very reassuring, isn't it? It's reassuring to know that God will bring justice for people like Dina. But it's also reassuring to know that God's plans are safe from the worst of our sinfulness. God's plans are even safe from someone like me, from someone like you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you uh, love and care for us and you care about what happened to Dina more than we can possibly imagine. And you care for us and you see us. Lord, please help us to not react to living in a sinful world with the unfettered anger and vengeance of the brothers. Please defend us from being careless and too passive and too fearful of suffering and end up saying nothing like Jacob. Please help us to respond as your people in ways that point to your mercy and your goodness and your justice and your love. Amen.